preach tonight, is that he's a self-proclaimed game show enthusiast. So let's welcome up Sam Kai. Come on down. Good luck, buddy. Deep breath. Just on? Yep. That's good. Game shows are good. Everybody likes game shows in here. That's, that's just the way it is. I was kind of hoping the song was going to be the Pharaoh Pharaoh, because it's relevant. And I watched a couple of videos on YouTube of little kids doing it, so I know the moves in case I had to do it in front of everybody, but maybe next time. So anyway, like Travis said, I've been coming to GBC for about nine years now. Um, and I'm really, really excited, really humbled to be able to teach from God's Word tonight. So, start out with a question for everybody. Have you all ever seen Shaquille O'Neal's high school basketball team photo? If not, no worries. It's exactly what you're picturing, and it is every bit as funny as you can imagine. The man is seven feet tall, standing next to a bunch of other 16-year-olds who could kiss his belly button without bending over. <laughs> like... He had one game in high school where he had 36 rebounds and 26 blocks. Like, that sounds made up. He's just so much bigger than all the other guys around him. Well, that's kind of like my passage tonight relative to the other guys this summer. <laughs> Mike had 10 verses in week one. James had 12 last week. In a couple weeks, Cole McMillan has eight, like single digits. Come on. I have a full chapter and an extra verse on top of that. This, this is the Shaq passage tonight. <laughs> and truly, it is, it is an incredible passage. And the hardest part of my preparation was cutting stuff out for time. So again, I'm very excited to preach on this Shaq-sized passage. And if you'd bow your heads with me, I'd like to pray for our time tonight. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Lord, thank you for giving us this opportunity to dive deeper into this passage. And I pray that you would illuminate the text tonight. I pray that you would use me as a means to speak to your people here tonight and that you are glorified through that. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm gonna start by reading the first five verses of Exodus chapter five. So you can go ahead and turn there if you have your Bible. But before we get into our text, let's kind of remind ourselves where we are in the life of Moses. Last week, James Bento preached on the Lord calling Moses and telling him to bring his people out of Egypt. But Moses is insecure and feels inadequate for this calling. So the Lord gives him a plan. He says, go to the elders of Israel and let them know that I am with you. And after you've told them that, I will perform miracles through you so that they know this to be true. So Moses, along with his brother Aaron, does what God commands and the people believe. They even bow their heads in worship. In that scene, the elders of Israel trusting Moses and the Lord leads us into our text today. So again, chapter 5, we'll start by reading verses 1 through 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness 
that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. So this is the very first meeting between Moses and Pharaoh, and Moses does just as the Lord commanded back in chapter 4 of Exodus. He's already starting to show his growing faith in the Lord. Because walking up to Pharaoh isn't like walking up to your boss or your CEO or like even the president of the country, however high up the chain you want to go. Pharaohs in ancient Egypt were literally considered gods by their people. Pharaoh answered to no one. He served no one. And Moses was well aware of this. Remember Mike's preaching a couple weeks ago? Moses grew up in the royal courts of Egypt, raised by a previous Pharaoh's daughter. So he knew making this demand of Pharaoh was a pretty audacious move. But Moses and Pharaoh's relationship doesn't get off to a great start. Moses walks right up to Pharaoh and delivers God's message, let my people go. And how does Pharaoh respond? Does he say, of course, of course, yes. I know God, I fear him, I revere him. Yes, you may go and worship. No, of course not. That would have been nice. That would have cut out the next 35 chapters of Exodus and I'd be the final speaker this summer. (laughs) But no, he says, who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord and I won't let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. Pharaoh's heart was already hard. This wasn't just a statement of ignorance. It was a statement of defiance. Pharaoh didn't know the Lord, but as a God to his people, he truly believed that he was superior to Moses' God. So he says no. No, he won't let the Hebrews go. Now obviously the Hebrews are the people in let my people go. So we have the Hebrews and we also have the Egyptians. Now we know the Egyptians are the, the bad guys in this story, right? They're oppressing all the Hebrew slaves and they're worshiping literally hundreds of false gods. We don't like that. We're all on the same page there. But what about the Hebrews? Are they the good guys in this story who only have redeeming qualities? Are they praying to the Lord every day and singing, come thou fount while they work? No. They've been in Egypt for hundreds of years now and have adopted a lot of Egyptian customs, including worshiping Egyptian idols. Like I was in a small group with a couple guys this year Uh, Aiden and Trayvon, I don't know where they went, but they're fresh out of college, and they change the way I talk. Like, I say things now, like, this pizza is giving. (laughs) And and that's just after a few months. Like, so it's no surprise the Hebrews have adopted some Egyptian customs after 400 years. (laughs) They know who God is still, but they no longer have a personal relationship with him after all these years and all these generations. So Pharaoh is more or less speaking for the whole nation when he says, I do not know the Lord. There's just, there's no getting around it. Things are bad in Egypt. So we think, well, at least it can't get worse than this, right? Well, that's what I thought when I was in college at Texas. We had a couple of mediocre football seasons all of a sudden. We go eight and four, eight and five. Like, we're Texas. It cannot get worse than this. And then we pushed out Mac Brown and hired Charlie Strong and had three straight losing seasons, didn't make a bowl. And then we hired Tom Herman, and then somehow Kansas becomes our rival. Like, (laughs) God, as Texas fans, we know things can always get worse. (laughs) So let's look back to our text, and spoiler alert, 
things can get worse. I'll read from verse 6, and we'll go through verse 14. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the four men of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? So right away, we get, we get introduced to a couple new characters in verse 6. Who are they? The taskmasters and the foremen. So the foremen were actually Hebrews who directly supervised the work of the Hebrew slaves and then reported up to their Egyptian taskmasters. So again, we have the Hebrew slaves at the bottom. They report up to the foremen who are also Hebrew slaves. They report up to the taskmasters who were Egyptians, and they report up to Pharaoh. Make sense? What else do we learn here? We also find out what the Hebrew slaves do all day. They make bricks. Now, if you work in Excel all day and love it, like I do, you may not have much personal experience making bricks. So here's a quick tutorial. Bricks were made by combining mud from the banks of the Nile with straw or chopped up grass. The Hebrews would mix the mud and the straw together, squeeze them into brick shapes, and then leave them to dry in the sun. So without the straw, the bricks are literally just mud and would crumble and fall apart pretty easily as they dry out. So the straw is a pretty necessary part of the process. So first, Pharaoh says they now have to gather their own straw, which was previously being provided to them. And second, Pharaoh says the number of bricks that they make shall not be reduced. So this raises a new question. What was the daily quota that was not being reduced? These verses don't tell us that detail, but there are actually Egyptian scrolls from that time that talk about this. One's in the Louvre, Wes. The daily quota was 2,000 bricks. Now, I also love math, just like Excel, so let's do a little math with that. Let's say I'm a Hebrew slave working my nine to five, making bricks all eight hours of my day, not even taking a lunch break. So that's 2,000 bricks divided by eight hours. That's what? 250 bricks per hour, or about four bricks per minute. And if you break it down further, the math works out to one brick every 14.4 seconds. Now, one brick, mud, straw, squeezed, formed, dried, every 14.4 seconds. Obviously, most of the Hebrews are just outside the Gen Z cutoff, so they're not quiet quitting or doing bare minimum Mondays. <laughs> they're, they're working longer than eight hours, I know. But however you want to do the math, that's a lot of bricks every single day. And now the straw, which again was previously being provided to them, they have to go gather that themselves. And with one brick every 14 seconds, there's not a whole lot of downtime where you can go gather straw for your 2,000 bricks. Basically, Pharaoh giving this order isn't just an inconvenience to the Hebrews. 
It's absolutely devastating and seemingly impossible. So as we see this message make its way from Pharaoh to the taskmasters to the foremen down to the Hebrew slaves, we see in verse 14 that our math was right. This is an impossible task for the Hebrews. The foremen, remember, are also Hebrews and are set over the Hebrew slaves to manage them. They are being beaten now because the daily quota of bricks is not being met. Things are just going from bad to worse. Not only are the people of Israel slaves in a foreign land, but now their work just went from intense to impossible, and their foremen are being beaten because of that. What is going on? Why is God allowing this to happen? These are his people, right? He said he would deliver them, right? But things are just getting significantly worse. Moses was obedient to God. He did what he said, yet things aren't going like he expected. Does that ever happen to us? Have you ever caught yourself expecting something from God because you did something good? Like, man, I've, I've read my Bible every day this week, and I've been serving with Generation One. I am due for some blessings from God. Or maybe you're even a little proactive about it. Maybe you have a big presentation at work or a big first date coming up, so you're going to serve God extra hard this week, and maybe he'll decide to bless you and make those things go well in return for your service, of course. What if God doesn't hold up his end of the bargain? Are we still willing to be obedient? This false prosperity gospel tells us that if we are obedient, the Lord will bless us with anything we want. Money, comfort, a spouse, a kid. Or for the Hebrews, a break from work and deliverance to the promised land. But that's not what the true gospel tells us. That's not what Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, when he said, we will be hated by all for his name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Notice what Jesus didn't say here. He didn't say, just make it through this little rough patch and then you can live like a king or even just live comfortably. No, he says, endure. He says, you will be hated. And he calls us to be obedient to this for his glory, for his namesake, so that the world would know how great he is. What is your motivation? Is it Jesus' name? Or is it something else? Is your motivation some worldly blessings that you think you're due from God? When you come to church on Sunday or Thursday, or when you wake up early to read your Bible, or when you go to small group, or when you uncomfortably share the gospel with your neighbor, is your motivation that you would receive blessings or God's favor? Or is your motivation simply that he would be glorified and honored in all that you do? Back in our text, the Hebrews, remember, don't really know the Lord. Their first thought is not one of repentance. The Hebrews don't pray, oh Lord, please save us from this inhumane labor. And if they don't know the Lord, they're not gonna turn to him. So who do they turn to instead? How do they respond to these beatings? Let's pick back up in verse 15, and we'll read through verse 23. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. 
The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So immediately, we see where the Hebrew foremen put their allegiance. Look back at verses 15 and 16. The foremen say to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Your servants are beaten. They call themselves Pharaoh's servants three times in three sentences. Pharaoh has given them this authority, these kind of management positions that are obviously better than being bottom of the totem pole. And then Moses comes in and ruffles Pharaoh's feathers so that he doubles the work of the Hebrew slaves. The Hebrew foremen are seeing what little authority they have start to slip away because of Moses, one of their own. So their first reaction is to turn to Pharaoh for help. That's where their allegiance is. They complain to Pharaoh, but he just tells them they're idle, they're lazy. He tells them, get back to work. So then the foreman turned to Moses and Aaron, accusing them, saying, this is your fault. And then finally, Moses chooses to take his complaints and the complaints of his people to God. Finally, somebody turns to God. Y'all, life gets hard sometimes. Life is hard for Moses here. Life is hard for the foreman. Life is especially hard for the Hebrew slaves. Most likely, none of us will ever have to make 2,000 bricks in one day using mud and straw. But that doesn't mean that we don't go through struggles too. We will. Paul reminds us on multiple occasions throughout the New Testament that as followers of Christ, we will be continually persecuted. And even before Paul, Jesus told his disciples, in the world, you will have tribulation. So it's no surprise we're going to go through some stuff. It's expected. They may be big things, like a loved one is going through chemotherapy right now. Or they may be smaller things, like, man, I had a really rough day at work today. Or honestly, for a lot of us, we may even be complaining about the good things in our lives. Did any of you complain that we just had salads for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> Or have you ever been upset that GBC didn't have your mango dragon fruit flavor of LaCroix stopped? <laughs> my natural reaction to anything negative in my life is just to keep it all inside, deal with it myself, big things, little things, even good things. I struggle with this. I think I'm a man, I'm a Texan, I don't need help. Now, obviously, it sounds a little ridiculous when I say it out loud. I recognize that. It's something I'm working on probably always will be. And maybe you don't keep it to yourself like I do. Maybe instead, when your job gets a little overwhelming, you complain to your coworker, or you complain about your coworker to your other friend, or you complain about one friend to another friend. Either way, you're taking your complaints to the world. You're seeking comfort from the world. Look again at Moses, the man who was chosen by God to deliver his people out of Egypt. What does he do? Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord. He's dealing with persecution. He's dealing with uncertainty. Nothing is going according to the plan that God promised him. Yet he still turns to God 
for comfort and for guidance. He doesn't pull himself up by his bootstraps. He doesn't complain to his brother Aaron. He turns to God. And now obviously, he doesn't do a perfect job here. He's pretty accusatory toward God, so there's a lot of room for improvement. But he does do the right thing by turning to God when no one else did. So we learn a little what not to do. We don't want to come to God with the mentality of, God, you need to fix this, or God, you messed up on this. But we also learn what to do. We go to God. Whether it's the big things, the little things, or even the good things, we turn to God with these things in prayer. But we do it not to get a quick action or quick response out of God. We do it as an acknowledgement of our dependence on God. We confess to him that we need him, and he uses that as a means to accomplish his purposes. And that's exactly what he's doing here in Moses' life. And we all have that same opportunity every day to seek the Lord in prayer and seek comfort from him. So we want to be like Moses in that way, how he takes his grievances to God. But I want to pause for a second and focus on what he actually asked God in the second part of verse 22. He says, why did you ever send me? Or said another way, why is this happening to me? Or maybe just, why me? Why me? Everyone in here has asked some form of this why me question. Why me? Why am I still single? Why can't I get pregnant? Why is my job so terrible every day? I want to encourage y'all who've asked any of these why me questions. My question while I was in college was, why can't I get a job? Why me? I'm in Austin, Matt, Texas, studying Excel and stuff, and I'm, <laughs> I'm starting to apply an interview for full-time jobs for after graduation. If y'all remember from earlier, pretty good at math, but you know what I'm not really good at? People, talking, <laughs> words, small talk, English. <laughs> Here, here's how the process would go each time. I apply for a job in Dallas because that's where my family lived. I send, in my, I send in my resume, they love it. I have a phone interview with the recruiter, they love me. And then I go to the in-person interview at the office, talk for a while, and then they ask, do you have any questions for me? Do you want to know what's going on in my brain whenever they ask that? Yeah. That. <laughs> Liter literally nothing. I freeze every single time and can't think of a, a single question, a single word. So I say, nope. I leave, and of course, I don't get an offer. <laughs> that exact scenario happened over and over and over my senior year. And I'm down, man. I'm depressed. I don't know what I'm going to do. I ask God, why me? Why can't I get an offer? Eventually, I decide to apply for a job in Houston because that's what's available, even though I don't know a single soul in Houston. So I get the job. Let's go. And then just a few weeks later, I run into one of my good friends from childhood, Jared Young, who's here tonight. I haven't seen him a single time in college, even though we've both been at UT for the past several years. So we talk, we catch up. I find out he's going to Houston for law school. We decide to live together. We find GBC. We find community here. We both begin serving in similar ways. And we both clearly see significant spiritual growth in our lives. These are some of the most important parts of my life that glorify God. God was working in my life. I was focused on the short-term, why me? But he was focused on the long-term, ultimate good 
that he, that he would accomplish for me and through me here in Houston. Do you think Moses is in a similar spot, asking God, why me, when his people are grumbling and it seems like God's plan isn't working out? How will God respond to this? How will he come through on his promises? Let's look back at the text, and we're going to conclude with verse 1 of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Strong verse. One translation, I forget, it's probably the message. It says, Moses gave a big old fist pump at God's response. (laughs) Finally, some good news. God reminds Moses that he is in control, he always has been in control, and he's setting everything up to reveal his glory to all of Egypt. And I want you to remember something from the very beginning. What did Pharaoh say in verse 2 of chapter 5? Look back at it. He said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And here, in verse 1 of chapter 6, God is reassuring Moses, Pharaoh doesn't know me now, but he will. All of Egypt will. And really, that's the whole point of this story. As I was studying this text, the thing I had in the back of my mind, the thing I kept thinking, asking, why doesn't God just take over? Why doesn't he just soften Pharaoh's hard heart? Why didn't God reveal himself to Pharaoh so that all the Hebrews could develop a real relationship with him and go worship? As Christians, we know that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can quite literally do anything he wants. So why doesn't he immediately act here when Pharaoh says no? That seems like the obvious solution for a God that's all-powerful, right? He could just soften Pharaoh's heart for the good of his people. Well, God, being all-knowing and all-powerful, chooses to reveal himself to Egypt, which again includes both the Egyptians and the Hebrews who don't really have a relationship with him, reveal himself in a way that shows his superiority over all these lesser gods of Egypt that both the Egyptians and the Hebrews were worshiping. Pharaoh's heart had to be hardened so that God's glory could be revealed to all of Egypt. All of Egypt. He's going to reveal his glory to the Egyptians through judgment, the plagues. And he's going to reveal his glory to the Hebrews through deliverance, the promised land. For these things to happen, Pharaoh's heart had to be hardened. Would over two million people have left Egypt if Pharaoh's heart wasn't hardened? Over two million people. That's the entire city of Austin, Texas, packing up and leaving to go worship. But they needed a reason to leave. A why. Their realization of their need for a savior and for a deliverer, that's their why. They would not know God if Pharaoh's heart wasn't hardened and God's glory wasn't revealed to all of Egypt. To show how bright the dawn is, God first has to show how dark the night is. And I know it's easy to see here. God is in control. But I also know sometimes in our lives, It's hard for us to remember that, or it's hard for us to see that, especially in the short term. Think of my many failed interviews so that God could bring me to Houston and use me at GBC. Think of the Psalms that a lot of us studied this past year and how so many of them recalled God's past faithfulness to provide comfort for present struggles. Think of Moses crying out to God, why me? And then God saying, I got this, and sending the plagues and parting the Red Sea and ultimately delivering his people to the promised land. 
We are a part of his plan. Even when we feel like we're suffering or we ask God, why me? We can remember the Hebrew suffering under Pharaoh and we can be reminded that God is faithfully ordaining each moment for an even greater result that we cannot see. God is in control. And in this, we can have peace. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful that you're in control. We are so thankful that you allow us to be a part of your plan. And I pray that we are active participants in that. I pray that our motivation is your glory. Please help us to remember that you are omnipotent and you are omniscient, and I pray that that gives us comfort. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.